As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Adam Crafton and David Ornstein are with us to discuss the biggest transfer deals at the window as Premier League clubs completed the second highest spending January in history, around £295 million spent. And on top of all of that, Everton announced Frank Lampard as their new manager as well. So we'll discuss that and also some of the moves that Everton have made. Um, We've had plenty of windows between us all where... We've been scraping the barrel, but there is a lot to talk about this time. So let's get stuck in straight away. Let's start, David, with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang uh, leaving Arsenal and going to Barcelona. What are the details? It brought to an end a pretty sorry episode that began in, what, early December when he returned late from a club-sanctioned trip to France to collect his unwell mother. It was actually just after Mikel Arteta had banned foreign travel for the squad um, amid the pandemic. And so special uh, permission was given. And Arsenal, when they stripped him of the captaincy, said this was his latest disciplinary breach. So clearly the bridge between Arteta and Aubameyang was burned because of what Arsenal deemed to be a repeat offender. He was made to train on his own, very publicly shamed it's fair to say, and I'm told by people around this situation that from that moment on, when he was stripped of the captaincy, there was no way back. And he never did return to the first team setup on even a training basis. He left the Africa Cup of Nations early. Gabon said that was because of heart lesions. Arsenal never confirmed or I think received official reasons why. Tests are said to have been clear. And that opened the way for a departure. Uh, a lot of work went on behind the scenes. We revealed on The Athletic that Juventus and Barcelona had emerged as the two strongest candidates. From Arsenal's perspective, a move to Saudi Arabia would have been the preference. They received a offer of a loan with an option or obligation to buy from Al-Hilal um, in the Middle East. They would have covered his wages in full, probably paid a fee as well. But he didn't want to go there. He wanted to continue operating at the highest level, and that means Europe. 
Uh, that's when Barcelona and Juventus emerged. They wanted to take him on loan for six months, both of them. Juventus was contingent on Morata leaving, and that would have freed up a space to for Aubameyang to form a new look front three with Vlaovic and Dybala. But Morata decided to stay, or Atletico Madrid uh, agreed that he would continue there on his two-year loan deal. And that meant Barcelona were the one left in the frame. It rapidly accelerated. A deal was close uh, as of the eve of transfer deadline day, as we revealed. And it seemed to all be going smoothly until midway through the day when talks pretty much collapsed. They broke down on the split of Aubameyang's salary, the coverage of his wages between Arsenal and Barcelona for that six months with Barcelona in a perilous financial situation, Aubameyang not wanting at that point to take a drop and Arsenal not wanting really to pay him anything. And Arsenal called him back. There was discrepancy over whether he had actually been given formal permission to go to Barcelona, which we were told was for a family trip because his father has a residence there. Um, And of course, he and nobody in this situation is naive enough to think it wouldn't put him in the right place if a deal had been agreed. We think he let the doctor at Arsenal know that he would be going. Of course, they're all in Dubai. There's not very many people back here in the UK. So it's all a bit disjointed on that front. Um, But I think the talks breaking down actually is what kick-started this deal to be completed. Finally, those who were, I don't know, stalling the process, complicating the process, all saw sense and they rapidly got this back on track. The clubs reached an agreement. It was being dealt with by Edu, the technical director from Arsenal's perspective, feeding back in everything to the manager Mikel Arteta and the hierarchy of the club. Um, And finally, a deal was struck, but as we broke on The Athletic, it was not what was expected, which was uh, initially a six-month loan deal. It was presented as a six-month deal plus one-year deal at the end of that. Subsequent reports have suggested that he'll leave, he'll have his contract terminated and join Barcelona as a free agent, so we're still waiting to hear the exact detail. However, his Arsenal career is over. I don't expect you to answer this, Adam, because actually I don't think anybody can answer this unless you're probably in the Barcelona boardroom. But the the the, the standard feeling, certainly amongst UK football fans or English football fans, is how on earth are Barcelona doing this, given everything that we've been told about Barcelona? The message I got on a couple of days ago from an agent pretty well connected at Barcelona was just financial masters. Um <laughs> with a with a laugh with a laughing emoji um, after it, it's very difficult to, to work it out. It is our job to do that at some point, but for them to get Danny Alves, Adama Traore, Ferran Torres, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang in this window after they've spent much of the past year telling us that they're you know nigh on bankrupt, and by the way, getting everything in order apparently to make a move for Haaland in the in the summer as well. Let's not forget. Yeah, you can't rule anything out. Um, Barca are back, is what we've been told, but at the same time, it's taking huge loans out. I mean, I'd love to have to hear some of these conversations between the Barcelona board and the banks when you're explaining. Yeah, we just really needed another forward. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you look at, when you look at their squad, um, it's like me going to the bank and going, "Yeah, I, I just really needed another kitchen. So yeah. if you could just add that onto the mortgage, that'd be great." So look, it's going to be scrutinised massively over the next few months. How it it must be fitting in with La Liga's fair play rules, otherwise they won't be able to do it. 
I think there must be some sort of staggered payment for Aubameyang within his contract, i.e., you know, maybe it's a smaller wage initially and then he gets a larger fee down the line or very predicated on bonuses. Equally, I can't imagine he would have just walked away from the huge contract he has at Arsenal without commitments and assurances. Um, and you have to remember as well, Barcelona didn't manage to get rid of Dembele. So they're still paying his wages, you know, for the rest of the season, despite him seemingly not really being part of the plans at all. So when this was being looked at as a six-month deal, it was very much Barcelona need to pay a large proportion and maybe Arsenal will contribute a little bit. That's the deal that seemed to fall apart. When the final agreement was reached, it was presented to me that Arsenal will continue paying a bit until the end of the season. Barcelona will contribute what they're able to under La Liga rules and Aubameyang will take a hit to his salary as well to make it all work. That's how keen he is to join Barcelona. And then from the summer onwards for the next year, he will reach an agreement with Barcelona or has reached an agreement with Barcelona for a straight out lower salary, a wage cut that fits in with their restrictions. One thing that was made clear to me throughout and contrary to reports elsewhere was that Barcelona did not ever need, under their own uh, circumstances and, and La Liga's guidelines, to get rid of a player to bring Aubameyang in. And Dembele was always likely to go as a free agent in the summer. That's his plan, despite Barcelona trying to get rid of him as the deadline loomed, offering him around. And they're actually friends from their time together at Borussia Dortmund, so that's quite an interesting one to watch. But the crux of this is that Aubameyang is not going to be earning anywhere near the salary that he was on at Arsenal, as far as we know. I mean, from an Arsenal perspective... Was there any hesitation about actually fully cutting ties? I mean, when you look at you know, Mikel Arteta, I know they're very invested in his projects. Not all fans are necessarily as invested and convinced about him long term. At least alone would have kept that option open if a new manager was to come in the summer, where, you know, arguably their, their best player over the past few years would still be available to, to be kept at the club. Arsenal and their hierarchy, their owners, they're all in on Mikel Arteta. There's reports of a new contract on the way and they've placed a great deal of faith, stock, finance behind him in terms of recruitment. Um, and he has increased his power at the club by um, gaining a promotion from head coach to manager. And everything is being built around him. Now, we've heard that before at various clubs and a change has happened. But I don't think new manager coming in is on the agenda in any way, shape or form. And therefore, it was whether the bridges could be rebuilt with Aubameyang. And depends who you speak to, really. Some say the problem was only with Arteta. Some say uh, it had gone further and Aubameyang had lost all trust of for and of Arteta and the club as a whole. There was too much water under the bridge for this to be repaired. Uh, I don't think um, they could have come back round the table and found a solution uh, for the final four months of the season, from what I hear. Aubameyang is a really popular character, uh, certainly with the young players at Arsenal, and I think he'll be missed in that sense. But the feeling from their perspective, and I've got to stress this is their version of events within the club, 
is that Mikel Arteta had to set a standard for discipline, timekeeping, punctuality. They're trying to improve the culture at the club and transgressions like they say Aubameyang has made on numerous occasions set a precedent that sends a bad message to the rest of the squad and undermines Arteta's authority. Others will say this was not a punishment fitting the crime. Similar has happened with Ozil, with Guendouzi, and that the problem is actually not at Aubameyang's end, it's at Arsenal's end. But one thing I was told was that Juventus and Barcelona did their background checks ahead of pursuing him and decided that they would had no concerns over his character, behaviour, professionalism. And a final one on Arsenal from both of you, because the, the feeling, bear in mind he wouldn't have played anyhow. The notion that Arsenal are weaker by getting rid of him probably doesn't hold water because he wouldn't have played anyhow. But they do look light up top, don't they? Bear in mind they didn't get transfer targets in. And indeed, one of the forwards that they do have, we are led to believe, will want to go in the summer in Eddie Nketiah. And Alex Lacazette's out of contract in the yes. summer yeah. as well. Arsenal have played five games this calendar year. They've scored one goal, had zero shots on target at Nottingham Forest, three shots on target in two in combined in two cup games against Liverpool. They're struggling to score goals. They're struggling to create chances. So, yeah, Aubameyang was out of the picture. Yes, he'd been out of form before falling out with Arteta in, you know, in the latest falling out. At the same time, I think we've seen enough instances in the past, whether it's you know Tevez and Mancini, where a manager can sometimes make amends to, to save his own skin to a certain extent and be quite cynical about it and bring someone back into the fold because a team needs it. Arsenal are in a race for the top four. Are they in a better place for losing Aubameyang? I think that's going to be... I'm sure that's what fans will be debating this morning. Speaking to a few Arsenal fans yesterday, it seemed like they're not that necessarily upset about losing Aubameyang, more that they go into the final few months of the season with two strikers who, you know, who don't guarantee goals. I've got to say that a counterbalance to this is that when Aubameyang um, was removed from the team, Arsenal went on a goal-scoring spree and were scoring from all areas didn't seem to be missing him and seemed to be in good shape for a real strong top four push. But as Adam says, the form then dropped away. There were some significant injury, COVID and AFCON absences. So that point can be debated long and hard. But the fundamental is that, yes, they are left extremely light. They also let Follerin Balogun leave on loan from uh, Arsenal to Middlesbrough, a talented young striker. Enketia and Lacazette, as you say, are going towards the end of their contracts with no sign of a renewal. We don't know if that will change. I certainly don't think it will on Enketia. Whether some compromise is reached on Lacazette, given he's the captain at the moment and also a very popular central figure to their play at the moment, I, I don't know. The last I knew, he wanted longer than Arsenal were prepared to give him and there was some consideration for a compromise, but no updates on that. And Arsenal will, of course, be looking to the market to strengthen in that area. And we can't deny that, although, as Adam says, Aubameyang didn't have the best season, I think he scored seven goals in 15 appearances before his removal from the team. 92 in 183 appearances since joining from Borussia Dortmund in January 2018. An elite European striker who is still obviously coveted by some of the biggest clubs in the world. 
and now Arsenal will have to do without him or any replacement because they didn't manage to get anybody in. Can I counterbalance the counterbalance on 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 the on the, on the goal glut, um, which was mostly against? Can, oh, can oh, I ask? Can I ask Adam? Because when when David went. They were on a they were on a spring. Mm. You immediately picked your phone up. Because I, I just remember, remember. you had a. Is that did you immediately Google Arsenal goal scoring spree? I remembered that they they beat Leeds is under twelves um, <laughs> in the middle of December, and I remembered they beat Sunderland in the cup. And I was going to see who else they um, the Gluck game against Spreed. Norwich away when Norwich were on the floor. Southampton three goals, fair enough, and that's the goal Gluck done. Um, <laughs> I take your point. When when he was initially dropped, it felt like the team were improving and liberated. But it, it feels like they've levelled off a bit since. And there's probably somewhere in the middle of that, um, which I think they're striped short, personally. Let's move on to Everton. Frank Lampard obviously announced as uh, as Everton uh, manager. It kind of then got lost uh, amongst their two rather interesting signings on deadline day. Adam, as you you have tweeted and and we have discussed before even recording this, the terms of the Deli Alley deal are it feels like nothing we've ever seen before. It's amazing. It's a free transfer, a free permanent transfer from Tottenham to Everton, and then if he plays twenty games. For Everton, then I think the first payment comes, which is, is that around uh, 10 million pounds, David? Uh, I don't know the actual figures on that. 10 million euros, well, it would have been pounds, wouldn't it? it it's in that region, I think probably a bit more okay. on the first one, so, Adam, and so then 10, it goes 10 higher. to 12 million, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's assorted bonuses that could take it as high as around 35 million to 40 million euros. So Yeah, but, that's right. Which is just so bizarre I mean <laughs> I said this last night I'm still trying to work out what Delhi would have to do to get to 40 so 35 40 million euros I mean it's like Everton would have to win Champions League or get into the Champions League I don't we don't know if yet if there's bonuses around just Everton staying in the Premier League or maybe him getting back into the England squad it's a fascinating structure I think it tells you unfortunately how broken his career was at Tottenham that Tottenham were at we're going to take the risk that they may not get anything at all for Delhi because if he was to leave Everton at the end of the season, having not done very well, not played 20 games, then, you know, Tottenham end up with nothing and Everton won't probably wouldn't end up with very much in that situation either. So it's a huge opportunity for him. I think it tells us something about, you know, Lampard to a certain extent and the confidence that he has in working with English talent, with midfield players, a sense of ego as well, in the sense of I think there'll be a lot of coaches out there who think I can be the one who resurrects this player. Um, I always thought Mark Hughes was brilliant at it, actually, with players who had maybe been cast adrift at other clubs, you know, whether it's players like um, or you know Stephen Island or Craig Bellamy. Um, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of other examples. You know, Bojan he had at Stoke as well on Altovich. I thought Mark Hughes was one of the best at that. Remains to be seen with Lampard. Obviously, you know, we know the job he did with Mason Mount in not dissimilar roles and positions. I think Delhi's more of a forward than Mount. And, and obviously the other player he's brought in is Donny van der Beek from Manchester United. And the challenge, you know, I think between the two of them, it, it will be, you know, which one of us can come out of this being regenerated. I think it's a bit of a battle actually between the two of them. 
Well, I'm intrigued to see how it goes because there's the potential there for some very exciting football and some fascinating stories for us. If um, if those guys can get their act together, Donny van der Beek, an absolutely brilliant talent at Ajax and it's just not happened at Manchester United, but there's great ability in there. Ralph Raniak, I understand, feels that he's perhaps not best suited and he's not the only one to English football. Uh, so we'll see if van der Beek can prove people wrong. Delhi, absolute sensational talent at coming through MK Dons to Tottenham under Pochettino, England at the 2018 World Cup. I was there. It was magnificent to see his progress and it's been a dramatic fall from grace. If it clicks with Lampard, you know, with they've brought in a lot of good players over the years. They've spent heavily um, at Everton and so it could be something quite exciting. But there's also seemingly an obsession at Everton to bring in number 10s and stockpile them. Trial and error, James Rodriguez, Gilfie Sigurdsson, Alex Iwobi, now these two. Um, and I'm not sure those were the most pressing concerns in the team. So it's a bit strange that you... not You know, it's not entirely their fault that they bring a manager in right at the end of the window and try and quickly gather a couple of signings together for him these names were presented to the managerial candidates in the interviews as potentials they could get in in the final couple of days it doesn't suggest a great deal of due diligence and strategizing they don't have a recruitment department at the moment Everton because Marcel Brands has left Greta Steinson and others are gone too so it's almost like who's coming up with these candidates the owners technical scouts a bit of a combination of the two agents and others I don't know and that's going to be one of the most interesting things to watch going forward how they try and rebuild Everton what they or what comes of this uh, strategic review we've been told about all gearing towards moving to their new stadium I really hope Lampard can continue what was looking like a really decent trajectory in management. Derby, the start at Chelsea in difficult circumstances under a transfer embargo, getting them into the Champions League, sacked in a position that he probably wouldn't have been sacked at most other clubs, uh, missed out on a number of jobs. It seemed, when when's his next opportunity going to arise? Well, it's here. And I guess all three of them have got more than unfinished business. And so, yeah. Can't wait to see it unfold. Speaking of, of, of midfielders or, or number tens, depending on where they play, uh, arguably the 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 best deal. Well, it depends how he performs, I suppose. The best deal or the most eye-catching deal. Adam is Aaron Ramsey to Rangers. Or well, I mean, and it's all depending on his fitness. I read yesterday that I think he'd play. He's only played two full Serie A games over the last couple of seasons, which I think is a bit of a problem. I'm not 100% sure what the salary contribution is from Rangers in the end, but, you know, obviously his salary at Juventus was, you know, extortionate for the general, in comparison to the Scottish League. But it's a, you know, it's a big deal. Um, There seem to be other interest across the continent in Ramsey. He's still, you know, a player of significant track record. I know he's in his early 30s now. I think it just gives you know, that Scottish title race, another boost, really. You know, you've got Celtic and Rangers, you've got a lot of attention on that on that league at the moment. They play against each other on Wednesday night in an all and derby, uh, two points separate them. And I think it speaks for, you know, perhaps how concerned Rangers might have been about the fact Celtic seem to be, you know, a bit stronger this year with Vange Postacoglu. So 
you know, really good, exciting. I think it's good for the product of, um, of Scottish football. I think it can only help them from a commercial perspective in terms of how they grow their game. But for Ramsey, you know, he needs to be playing football. You know, he's still part of the Wales setup. I feel like I've barely seen him play football for the last few years after, you know, him being really quite in demand when he was leaving Arsenal. And that's, you know, that's pretty sad, to be honest. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Uh, let's talk Newcastle then. This could be quite a big section. Chris Woff covers the club for The Athletic and joins us now. The club have secured five new players at a cost of about £92 million. Uh, before we go on to the players, one of, one of my favourite parts of this transfer window has been uh, reading and listening uh, to Newcastle writers and journalists who for about a decade during January transfer windows have basically put their feet up and done nothing and now are absolutely shattered. Well, yeah, and now I have the slightest idea of what it's like to be David Ornstein during a window because this is only the slightest idea because it's not quite that extent. But yeah, it's just been, it's gone from one extreme to another. This used to be almost put time off in January for me or wait till deadline day. They might sign someone online on deadline day, but no, it's just been absolutely, I knew it was going to be manic, but I just had no comprehension. And even going into deadline day, I knew that was going to be manic. But yesterday was, it just went to a different level as well. Even your piece actually references a senior member of Newcastle's inner circle who says I can't tell you how tired I am I haven't slept for a week yeah and I mean that, that's that's coming from because I mean we as journalists are tired fans are exhausted never mind what people in and around the club I mean imagine what Eddie Howe's been like this last month almost being a sort of shadow shadow director of football as well as head coach the people in and around the club it's just been absolutely incredible it's been exhausting but hopefully they've ended the window stronger than they started it which was the, which was the goal throughout I just wanted to ask, uh, and it's not entirely tongue-in-cheek, Chris, did they have the experience, know-how staff to excel in negotiations, in executing medicals, in doing the paperwork, documentation, work permits and stuff like that? The logistics of it would have been a challenge in its own right, given they had done so little recruitment work over the recent years no, you're totally right and I mean just looking back to the end of, of sort of Mike Ashley's time Lee Charnley was the only executive at the club he left in November of Newcastle's negotiating team which was sort of uh, Amanda Stavely and, and the core of owners at, at various different points Jamie Rubin who wasn't the head of the negotiating team was involved it was the only one with any real football and experience and that was just a short period of time on the board at Queen's Park Rangers. Steve Nixon, the head of recruitment, has taken on an even stronger role than he did under Mike Ashley and has been speaking to agents and being part of negotiations now for Newcastle. And Eddie Howe has had to, to get involved as well. Jason Tindall, his assistant too. But they don't have that infrastructure in place. They haven't got the director of football appointed yet. That search has been carried out by a third party. They hope to have that in place soon. They don't have a CEO. They don't have, as some clubs like Manchester United do, someone who, who does the, the contract negotiations themselves, who's in, in control of that. Newcastle don't have any of that. They, they hired Nick Hammond very briefly before the window to, to carry out some consultancy 
sections of your work. And then my understanding is he did a little bit on an ad hoc basis since. But really, this has been a very inexperienced team. And I think at certain points that has shown in certain negotiations and the failure to get certain done, deals done. But to complete the business that they have, given the the lack of nous, given the lack of experience there, I think in some ways it is admirable that they do seem to be stronger than, than when they started the window. Have they had to have um, a slightly... I don't know if scattergun approach is a bit too is a bit too strong, but have they had to be varied in who they've been trying to get simply because of their situation? And I mean that both where they are in the table and both the the perceived amount of money they have to spend. So they might be going for a certain player, and the club that they're trying to buy that player from will take the mick because they know Newcastle have got a lot of money. Or they might go for another player in that same position. The fee's all right with the club, but the player might not want to go because of the situation that Newcastle in are in in the table. So for every player that they have signed, have they had to have seven targets, eight targets. Uh, basically, the plan has changed several times. When they first took over the club, the idea was they might spend about 40 or 50 million, bringing sort of three players, strengthen the spine of the team. Then when Eddie Howe came in, it changed slightly. He had certain targets that he wanted, certain positions filled. And then as their position became increasingly perilous in the table, it became that they even needed even more signs. So coming into the start of the window, Kieran Trippier was a priority, as was Sven Botman as a centre-back. And then they wanted players on top of that. They obviously got Trippier, did not get Botman, also wanted Diego Carlos, did not get him, had several centre-backs, both uh, in terms of domestically and abroad, who they looked at. So in, in the end, they got Dan Byrne, but all window, they had sort of Nat Phillips and James Tarkovsky somewhere on the list. Both Tarkovsky was probably unattainable, but also how wanted more of a, more someone who's probably more comfortable on the ball. And Dan Byrne's been playing that way at Brighton. So that's one sort of example. But in certain positions, there was claims at one stage that they had sort of 45 player deep lists for certain positions and there were inquiries. I mean, what's astonishing about this window is that although a lot of the names out there, some of them uh, were maybe exaggerated in some ways, that there was a shred of truth in so many of them because Newcastle, to try and find out who was available and to try and to see who may be interested for all the reasons that you said, Newcastle put out inquiries or feelers to so many players to, to just to, to try and find out who they could get in. So at various points of the window, and in that, that long piece that you mentioned that we've done, we just touch upon just a few of them. Um, and then there was also sort of... I would describe it as almost misinformation out there in terms of certain players. I mean, all the way through the January window, we had this Usman Dembele saga playing out in Barcelona. And journalists in Barcelona were calling me and saying, oh, Barcelona, people of Barcelona are telling me that Newcastle are going to sign Usman Dembele. And it's just like, they're not going to sign Usman Dembele. <laughs> they're being used in that sense as well to help clubs to either portray an image or to help with contract talks and certain negotiations. And also it's, it's been put out that Newcastle are offering £200,000 a week wages to players who may leave a club because of that in their club's interest to say he's gone for all that money and Newcastle were quite clear from early on they didn't want to really break what has been a tight wage structure under Mike Ashley in one window if possible so there's so much complication in this window put aside the fact and then we can bring Adam and David in put, put aside the fact that Newcastle have actually just bought some players in which in, on its own will generate excitement compared to, to previous transfer windows is the business good? I think the business is good I don't think that it's I would probably score it maybe seven, possibly eight out of 10. They, they haven't, they, ironically, the final signing was the one that probably needed most in terms of a centre-back. That was the priority throughout, to sign a left-sided centre-back. Ideally, they wanted two. They only got one. 
I think Kieran Trippier is a very good signing. Chris Wood was almost a necessity signing. It hasn't he hasn't quite looked in form yet, but he's someone who that just needed a striker. Um, they missed out obviously in the end on the likes of, of Jesse Lingard and also Hugo Ekatiki. They really needed one more sort of attack and player if possible because they're not scoring enough goals as well as conceding too many. But I think Bruno Gimoresh, they desperately needed a number six tile midfielder. He's he's who they wanted. They pushed from late in the window. They got him. So I think the business has been good, not absolutely spectacular in the sense that I, do, I don't think that you can say now they categorically definitely will survive. I think they have a better chance. But I think it's I think it's a it's a good window, if not an absolutely exceptional one. They're five players that go straight into the team. You'd probably say um, maybe unless yeah. Callum Wilson's fit, and then maybe would get you know if he only plays with one striker. Uh, the centre back one worries me a bit, just in terms of you know when you when you think to the start of the window, and this you know this isn't Newcastle's fault. It's just unable to do the deal in the end with Sevilla or with or with Lille, but. I think to go from Botman and Diego Carlos to, to Dan Byrne it, it is a downgrade, I think, in terms of where they, where Eddie Howe wanted that to go. Um, I think that's pretty indisputable. So I think that's the one position that would worry me a bit. I think, but, you know, they're stronger at fullback, stronger in midfield. I think they should be able to control games a little bit more as a result. But I think this whole thing really relies on a player coming in from France Brazilian player Bruno Guimaraes and hitting the ground running I think because he's going to have to be the glue that sort of brings all this together from the middle of the pitch and and that's not easy you know we've seen a lot of players Tottenham have just sent a record transfer back to Lyon on loan for the rest of the season in in Tongi and Dombele Um, I think we you know you can't underestimate how difficult it can be to just transition immediately in a high pressure environment into the Premier League but I think you know with the other signings they've brought Premier League know-how there's a sort of, I think there's a bit of a guarantee that you get with Trippier and Target. Would you know what you're getting? So I think they'll be relatively happy. It makes them better. But as Chris says, I don't think it's necessarily enough that you look at Newcastle now and you think, God, all those other teams down there are in huge trouble because of what they've done. Who did they miss out on that you think they either, A, they really, I know you mentioned Botman, but I think Diego Carlos. From Sevilla. Lingard would be the other one, I'm guessing, Chris. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the, the three players who come the end of the window. I think Newcastle will be frustrated because at various points, I think that they thought they were all possible. Botman, that I think they went in the window w- with Boyd thinking that that could happen and that could be an exciting deal. He, he'd shown a, a sort of a willingness to come, but obviously Lille wouldn't deal with them. Diego Carlos at various stages over the course of a few weeks they thought that that was going to happen again the player showed a willingness but Sevilla they couldn't agree a fee with Sevilla they they alleged that the goalposts changed at various points but that there was there was a lot in that deal and it didn't happen Jesse Lingard again I mean they walked away from the deal at several points but it always you always felt mm, maybe when that comes to the very end of the window something could happen and obviously as, as as David reported yesterday they did go back in from and, and there was a hope that it could even happen on deadline day and Lingard himself wanted to go out and play and I think those three players again would have been a step up on anything else Newcastle had signed they would have immediately gone into the team so they're the three I think they really will look back and, and rue to 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 a certain extent just to pick up on Adam's point about the signings I do think it's interesting that the Gimmarish is slightly different than all the rest because all of the others how sort of preached the need for Premier League experience when they didn't get Botman and Carlos. He said, right, what I want is someone who's played in the Premier League. 
and that's why they ended up getting Dan Byrne. Gimoresh, they they recognised there's a sort of calculated gamble there to a certain extent. They looked at uh, Eve Basuma at Brighton, who they've liked for a lot of years. They looked at a few of their players domestically, but they've taken a bit of a calculated gamble on Bruno Gimoresh, hoping that he can... Because Newcastle are so poor at retaining the ball, and Gimoresh, that's one of the things he's very good at. He's good at playing out from tight positions. He's good at hopefully moving the team up the pitch. And so they've taken that calculated gamble and hope that he, along with Trippier, is someone that can build around for the future, hopefully in the Premier League. David, anything on Newcastle? Well, I think that they have done enough work, in my opinion, to uh, survive relegation. Um, And now let's see how they settle in because it's absolutely clear that they weren't really ready for this transfer window. They didn't have the right personnel in place. The takeover that was four years in the making sprung out of the blue. I think it was on October the 7th in the end. And plans weren't in place for this market and in that context they executed pretty well but the true test will be what they do going forward we're certainly a long way from the likes of Mbappe and Haaland and all these guys that they were being half jokingly linked with at the beginning but now they need to undertake a real project in the years ahead and see if they can become the big players that they want to be and which their rivals fear they will become. Finally Chris if they they stay up This summer, are they going to encounter a lot of the same problems, do you think, that they've had in this window? Not internally, but externally when it comes to dealing with clubs. I mean, as you say, internally, that they would very much like to have that they should have their executive structure in place there but in terms of dealing with other clubs that may in itself help to a certain extent if they have certainly experienced football people dealing because I think there was at least in, in, on some occasions examples of, of sort of like snobbery but the fact that there was so much inexperience at Newcastle and so they didn't like dealing with them in that sense but there there is going to be almost certainly a, a lingering hostility I think that if Newcastle survive, the difference will be there won't be in a position in the summer where clubs will be thinking, oh, we can get Newcastle relegated, as, as maybe has been the, the case at, at, at this point in time to think, oh, we won't deal with Newcastle, might go down. In the summer, that won't be the expectation if they survive. But still, you, you may have, if they try to go for a player at a sort of top six club at the moment, will they want to deal with Newcastle and potentially strengthen a rival, as has been the case? I think they're going to face that resistance. I think that they will find more receptive deals in this in the summer in terms of once they have an executive structure in place and if they know they're going to be in the Premier League, say, come March, if, they, if they've gone on a bit of a run, they can actually put the background work in to make sure those deals are in place, as would often be for the summer window as well. So it will be difficult, but I don't think it'll be anything as near as challenging as this month because there were so many unique circumstances dictating why this, this month was so difficult for them. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? 
It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Just one final one, I think we should, we should, we should just mention, Adam, which is West Ham, who... I think their fans might have expected a bit more in this window, bearing in mind where they are. And the natural instinct is to go, oh, the owners didn't want didn't want to spend any money. But David Moyes is notoriously cautious when it comes to signing players. And I wonder how much he didn't want to affect the balance of that squad when they're in the position that they're in. Yeah, it was really interesting. The last few days of the window, sort of reports came out about interest they had in players that never seemed likely to, to join, um, to, to be blunt, or, you know, targets that just seemed utterly unattainable. You know, Rafinha at Leeds, and I asked someone pretty senior at Leeds on Friday, you know, is there any chance of it? He just said, absolutely impossible that, that that could happen. Then there was a story about Calvin Phillips, that they were trying to sign Calvin Phillips again. You know, I don't mean this disrespectfully to West Ham, you know, they're in a battle for the top four, you know, it's not out of the question they get into the Champions League. But I think Calvin Phillips, probably, if he's leaving Leeds, probably has a bigger a bigger club in mind or a club with, you know, more chances of, of winning the biggest trophies. It was a little bit strange. Obviously, they, they also tried again for Jesse Lingard towards the end of the window. There was a bit of talk about Darwin Nunes as well from Benfica. But it, it felt a bit from the outside as though there was a lot of noise without very much ever being likely to happen at West Ham in this window. And you're absolutely right. David Moyes, you know, he's very specific on targets. He's got, you know, he's got a group there now of pretty good characters, good spirit in the group that he wouldn't have wanted to necessarily disturb. But, you know, before that window, I think a lot of West Ham fans were hoping they'd bring a striker in, you know, to go through a whole season with only Mikel Antonio as a striker, given the injury issues we know he's had. I think that makes it, now, you know, if David Moyes was to get into the top four without any other striker than Mikhail Antonio, then he'd be the manager of the decade, to be frank. Though then again, I mean, Mikel Arteta is essentially trying the same trick now at Arsenal. Um, so so who knows? It just feels like a bit of a missed opportunity for West Ham. But maybe that, you know, maybe there's also a degree of acceptance that, you know, we sort of know where we are in the Premier League table and that's maybe around fifth or sixth at best. Right, that's it. Adam, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you to you for listening. You can subscribe to The Athletic and get a 33% discount by heading to theathletic.com slash football pod. Uh, and I'm back on Thursday with the Business of Sport podcast. The Athletic.